Welcome to the 2019 Good News Church Global Outreach Conference. The following is session three, recorded Saturday, March 30th, 2019, with Leonardo DiCerico, entitled Mother of God, a Biblical View of Mary. Let's now join the session. Good morning, everyone. Buongiorno, you would say in Italian? Buongiorno, yes. Thank you very much. That uh, makes me feel home. <laughs> if you want, I can continue to speak Italian. <laughs> that you won't feel at home. <laughs> Our topic today has to do with Mary and uh, Mary, the biblical Mary and the Mary of the church. And the two pictures of Mary are very different. And uh, we will be looking at uh, the way in which the Bible presents the uh, character, the person of Mary, uh, her role in salvation history, in the history of the incarnation of the Son, Jesus Christ, and the way in which uh, the belief and the devotions around Mary developed uh, in the subsequent centuries in the uh, practices of the Church, and the way in which the two pictures uh, became so uh, different. And then we will be seeing some of the problems, the main problems that uh, Mariology, the doctrine of Mary and the practice of Marian veneration, uh, the problems that they bring to the, uh, the Christian faith. And uh, finally and fourthly, we'll be seeing how we can honor the legacy, the memory of Mary in a biblical way uh, without uh, uh, not recognizing her important role, but uh, also recognizing the fact that uh, uh, she was a believer like uh, all of us are, and uh, we want to pay honor to her example, but always distinguishing uh, her from the worship and praise that is due to our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So that's uh, the basic plan. I and ask you to move to the next uh, um, slide. Mary in the Bible, we have uh, uh, several uh, biblical texts that uh, present us the uh, person of Mary and uh, they are clustered into um, a couple of sections in the Gospel story. Uh, first of all, they are clustered in the so-called infancy narratives, the narratives in the synoptical Gospels, namely Matthew and Luke, uh, who present us the story of how uh, the birth of Jesus took place. And uh, in those stories, the role of Mary is prominent because we're told that uh, God uh, chose this uh, lady, young lady, and uh, sent the Archangel Gabriel to um, present to her the plan that was going to be accomplished by, uh, with the incarnation of, of the Son. Mary, this young lady, accepting the, the challenge and the, not knowing what was going to happen next, but trusting the Lord and uh, committing herself to be a servant of that plan. So not putting any obstacle, not responding in, with unbelief or with uh, um, disbelief, but actually uh, following uh, 
the course of God's will for her, even though it would have taken some uh, a number of um, challenges for her life. And, uh, and so we are told by Matthew and Luke how she was involved in that um, event of the Incarnation, how although she was engaged with, with this man, Joseph, uh, the baby would not have been born out of a natural um, sexual intercourse, but out of a uh, overshadowing of the Holy Spirit over her, and uh, and therefore also uh, putting her in front of a something that she didn't really grasp uh, in a full way. And then after these uh, infancy narratives. Uh, she kind of disappears from the story of the Gospel. She appears here and then as part of the family, the, the, uh, Jesus' family, and uh, at times being part of the faithful community around uh, Jesus, trusting, following, believing, being part of what Jesus is doing, at times being um, part of the unbelieving, community around Jesus, uh, expressing doubts, fears, and even embarrassment with regards to the person and the work of Jesus. Uh, at one point in the Gospel, she's also sent by the family to, uh, to stop him, to stop uh, the Lord Jesus, because he is creating embarrassment for the family. And so, and that, at that point, you know, you remember Jesus uh, when uh, he was approached by people saying, your mother, your family has come to visit you. Jesus famously uh, looking at the, at the crowd saying, who is my mother, who is my family? Those who believe in me and do my will, they are my mother, my family. So Jesus was um, in a way respecting her mother, but also he was free from being uh, totally under the authority or the care of the mother, she, he was free to pay respect to her, but not to the point of being under her. And uh, that is also true as far as the story of the miracle of Cana, the first sign that John uh, tells us, the first miracle that Jesus performed, and Mary was also involved in that story, uh, becoming the spokesperson of the organizers of the wedding feast, and uh, Jesus at one point saying, the hour has not come. Why are you pushing me to do something that uh, I am not yet ready to do? And then Jesus then moving on in doing the miracle, performing the miracle. So she's part of that community around uh, the Lord Jesus, at times expressing faith, at times expressing doubts, like uh, all of us, in a way, um, experience in our walk, in our uh, Christian walk, in our Christian journey. And, uh, and then <clears throat> she, is also, uh, she also appears at the end of the Gospel story when uh, most of Jesus' friends have left him and uh, few women and John are the only ones who are uh, under the cross uh, looking at what is happening and uh, uh, but being close to the Lord Jesus, even when he is dying. So, she's never left uh, uh, her son, 
and uh, she's part of the believing community also as far as the beginnings of the Christian church in the accounts of the book of Acts uh, are concerned. And she is part of the uh, believing community, the praying community, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then she disappears from the account of the book of, um, of, the book of Acts. She disappears as the focus of the story uh, transitions from the community in Jerusalem to the expansion of the church in other areas, in other regions of uh, the Middle East, and then to the end of, of, the, of the world. And uh, Paul, interestingly, uh, never mentions her name in his multiple accounts of uh, the Gospel message. In one in particular, uh, which make, makes reference to the role of the woman as being the bearer of the uh, Son of God becoming man, Galatians 4, he mentions the role of the woman, born of a woman, but uh, he doesn't even mention the name of Mary. The point is not the person of Mary per se. The point is the miracle of the incarnation of the Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The focus of the Pauline Gospel is not on Mary, but is on Jesus as being the Savior, the God-man, uh, having come to us to be our Savior. And Mary, having played a very important role and part, but not asking attention on herself and for herself, but actually being part of a larger narrative that is focused on the Lord Jesus, his person and work. No mention then of Mary after uh, Acts chapter 2. And then there is this disputed, highly disputed interpretation of Revelation 13 when it talks about the woman and the role of the woman. I must say that only Roman Catholic interpreters of the Bible clearly see Mary in that chapter. Again, it is not named, there is no a clear reference to Mary, and most interpreters would interpret the reference to the lady or the woman in Revelation 13 as referring to the church. The church being uh, involved in the story, in the dramatic story of salvation there um, recounted uh, in apocalyptic, apocalyptic terms and uh, but not specifically referring to Mary as, as, as an individual, but rather referring the lady to the corporate subject of the church, the people of God, uh, being part of that play, of that story. So, on the whole, we are, uh, what we have in the Bible is a very sober account of the story of this uh, young lady having become the mother of Jesus and having become part of the believing community around the person of Jesus. And with ups and downs in her life, with days in which she was totally convinced of the, uh, what her son was doing, and days when she had doubts, fears, even feeling embarrassment uh, for what he was doing. Ups and downs, as all of us are experiencing in our Christian walk. 
But what happened, and I ask you to move forward, what happened in the uh, subsequent centuries in the history of the church? Why and how can we explain the fact that from this very sober account that defines Mary as being part of the story of the Incarnation but doesn't attach any other further added meaning and significance to her person and her life, how do we account for that, the expansion, the explosion of Mariology out of that beginnings that are clearly defined by source, uh, sobriety and uh, uh, very limited elements that the Gospels and the whole of the New Testament give us. How do we explain the fact that out of that, that uh, beginnings, um, a very sophisticated and uh, inflated, conflated um, account of Mary developed uh, in the uh, practices and beliefs of the Church? There are at least uh, four elements that we have to consider as they are factors that, uh, united together, help us to understand the growth, the expansion or the explosion of Mariology. Mariology being the doctrine of Mary and the practice of Marian devotions. And uh, the four factors are uh, in, of course, they, 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 they are intertwined, but can be also assessed in um, specific ways. The first factor that helps us to explain the growth of Mariology and the transformation of the Mary of the Bible into the Mary of the Church is the circulation of apocryphal Gospels, that is, accounts of the, uh, sto the biblical story, the, the, the story of Jesus, uh, which uh, that circulated in the first centuries of the church, uh, besides the uh, writings, the canonical writings that were eventually accepted as inspired accounts of the gospel story. Uh, we now have you know, the four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were recognized as being inspired by God himself to tell us in different ways, although harmoniously, the story of the Incarnation and the work and the life and the work of the Lord Jesus. But there were other Gospels, other books uh, that circulated in the first centuries. One of them in particular, the so-called Gospel of James, uh, fully um, focuses not on the story of Jesus, but on the story of Mary. That Gospel gives uh, the, the readers uh, a number of episodes and stories about the, uh, the family of Mary, about the parents of Mary, about events on Mary's childhood, her miracles, her wonders, and uh, the focus of this non-canonical apocryphal gospel is not Jesus, but is Mary. And that gospel played a very important role in capturing the imagination of many circles within the early church, who were exposed both to the canonical gospels focusing on Jesus and presenting Mary as being part of the larger story, 
but not presenting Mary as the character, the main character of the story. But this gospel instead presented the story of Jesus, but having Mary at the center and having Mary as the main character and focusing on Mary as the hero of the story. So that contributed to introduce into the imaginary of the early church a, an inflated picture of Mary that uh, strikingly was very different from the sober account of the canonical gospel. So that was one factor that contributed to introduce into the life of the church this idea that Mary was not only a special lady, but she was the lady to uh, be focused on in our appreciation of the gospel story. Secondly, some of the church fathers in the early centuries uh, began to use uh, some unchecked analogies that opened the way for further development in the way in which Mary was understood in her relationship with Christ. I'm talking about uh, especially very important church fathers and in many ways very orthodox church fathers like Justin Martyr in the uh, second part of the third cent uh, second century and uh, Irenaeus of Lyon in the first par part of the third century who began to use the analogy of Mary being the new Eve uh, and, and using this analogy in expanding the analogy that the Apostle Paul uses uh, when it speaks about Christ as being the new Adam. You know, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, when he interprets the overall overarching story of salvation, he sees a parallel between and a contrast between the first Adam, who was created and sinned against God and therefore uh, broke the covenant uh, with God and the new Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, the representative of humanity, of a faithful humanity that, unlike the first Adam, obeyed the will of the Father and not only obeyed for himself but he represented those who would have trusted him in order for them to be saved by the Father through his work, his atoning work on the cross. The first Adam, the last Adam, the second Adam. These are, this is the overarching uh, architecture of, the, of salvation history that Paul paints uh, both in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the church father said, hmm, if at Jesus is the new Adam, what about Mary being the new Eve? Is it not interesting to notice that that analogy, that image, can be stretched to Mary in order to make her the new Eve? As Christ is the new Adam, Mary could be the new Eve. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve. And so, compensating or stretching the analogy as to involve not only Adam, 
but also Eve. So do we have a first Adam, a first Eve, both failing, both disobeying, both becoming sinners, and we have the new Adam together with the new Eve. And the new Adam was sinless, and if we accept that analogy, there must be a way in which Mary, the new Eve, must have been special. You see, that analogy became so powerful in uh, uh, prompting, encouraging further development in expanding that picture of Mary always being close to the sun, always being next to the sun, always being together with the sun. And if the sun is the new Adam, and if Mary is the new Eve, she must have been unique. In herself, not in her being the mother of the son, but in her person, in, in her moral, spiritual character and uh, holiness. So I, 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 in order to, 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 to spend the word in defense of the fathers, I think that this analogy can be used as an illustration. As a preacher, you always find, look for illustrations and uh, ways of explaining you know, the, the truth of the gospel. And in, in, in some ways, that analogy was used by Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of Lyon as an illustration, as a, a way of describing, illustrating the wonder of Jesus Christ being the new Adam, the representative of this new humanity. But that analogy, as used as an illustration, uh, became a truth in itself, became a statement, became a theological truth, no longer an illustration, but a statement. Opening up the way to consider Mary inherently, organically, theologically always involved in whatever the Son is, whoever the Son is, and whatever the Son does. The third element has to do with prayer. As this non-canonical Gospels uh, presented a picture of Mary as a hero of the faith, as the mother of Jesus, and as the new Eve, always to be thought of as being close to the Son, the new Adam, uh, the early church, sectors of the early church, began to develop a Marian spirituality. She, be, she began to be prayed to. She began to be referred to as the helper, the mother, the one who can help us as the mother. And people began to pray to her. Uh, developing devotions to her, rosaries, prayers, chains of prayer, practices that would uphold Mary as the main helper uh, to seek the comfort from. And uh, uh, this is a Latin expression, lex orandi, lex credendi. Uh, it basically means uh, what you pray is what you believe. The way you pray is the way you believe. Your prayer
prayers shape your theology. It should be the other way around, but in practice it often happens in this way. What you pray is really what you believe and ultimately will shape what you believe. So in observing the uh, expansion or the use of these Marian prayers, suddenly the early church became convinced that Mary was actually the one who could help because she was prayed to and because of these unchecked analogies turned to be theological affirmations coupled with the spreading of this Marian spirituality centered on Marian prayers ended up in confusing the church and making it convinced that Mary was indeed worthy to be prayed and capable of listening to our prayers and to respond to our prayers. Marian shrines began to pop up, temples, churches dedicated to Mary, uh, pictures of Mary, statues of Mary, and Marian pilgrimages began to develop. It is interesting that the Emperor Constantine at the beginning of the 4th century, when he became emperor and wanted to, wanted to endorse and, 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 and affirm Christianity, he built four main churches in Rome, dedicating one to St. Peter, the second one to St. John, the third one to St. Paul, and the fourth one to Mary. So, at the very beginning of the 4th century, we already have several buildings, churches, church buildings dedicated entirely to Mary. You see the process. It started with non-canonical writings. It developed with unchecked analogies, unwisely used by the church fathers. It further developed into becoming a prayer movement dedicated to Mary. And it ended up in establishing a cult centered on buildings, statues, processions, um, practices, and so on. The fourth factor has to do with some dogmatic pronouncements made by uh, the early church first and then by the Roman Catholic Church later. And in 431, the Council of Ephesus uh, affirmed for the first time um, the title of Mary as being the mother of God, the Theotokos in Greek, the bearer of God, the mother of God, in wanting to reinforce and affirm and defend the full humanity and divinity of Jesus, the Council of Ephesus, in the context of Christological controversies of the time, came up with this idea of um, referring to, me, to Mary as the Mother of God. Since Jesus was fully God, there is a sense in which Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, was also the Mother of God. And there is a sense in which this is true. If Jesus is God and Mary is the Mother of Jesus, 
there is a sense in which she is the mother of God. But that title, defendable as it is, became also the springboard to attract attention to Mary per se as the mother of God and kind of detaching that motherhood from the son and uh, making it a standalone quality or property of Mary. Mary, mother of God, became Mary, mother of the church, Mary, mother of all humanity, Mary, my mother. You see all these unchecked developments. Once you plant the seed and you don't carefully define it and safeguard it, that the seed grows and develops and becomes something bigger, even outside of the intentions of the early church. And that motherhood uh, tendency or recognition became so prominent in Catholic practice and teaching to the point of having after 18 or 15 centuries uh, ended up in ending up ending up in uh, having two more dogmatic pronouncements made by the Catholic Church. The 1854 dogma of the Immaculate Conception, the belief that she was preserved from original sin, and the 1950 dogma of the bodily assumption of Mary, the belief that she was taken body and soul soon after dying to the heavenly glory. And if you follow the so-called logic, Marian logic, it makes some sense. If Mary is the new Eve and Christ is the new Adam and the new Adam is sinless, and Mary is the new Eve, there must be a sense in which she is also unique in her not being, not having been stained by original sin. And if Jesus is the new Adam, having been resurrected to the heavenly glory, and Mary is the new Eve, and she is the mother of God, there must be a sense in which she would also need it to be confessed as having been glorified. Now, all this logic is not uh, presented in the Bible. Mariology has become a self-referential doctrine that can develop itself without needing biblical support. Once you lose sight of the biblical boundaries, you open up a self-referential development that can develop over time without necessarily going back to biblical teaching. Biblical teaching is no, no longer necessary once you open up that route of self-referential development. Now, just to give you an example, uh, you, you know that the 8th of December is the 
feast of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, the 8th of December. And the, the reason for this day is that it was on the 8th of December that uh, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary uh, was promulgated, the 8th of December of 1854. Now, on that day, last year, uh, the, the, the present-day Pope, Pope Francis, gathered a huge meeting in St. Peter's Square to pray uh, a Marian prayer, to pray to Mary together. And I'll just list the number of titles that she uh, is referred to and she is given. That shows, that this list shows the vastness, the uh, wideness and the um, the wideness of this uh, cult and veneration. Now listen to this. Holy Mother of God. Now in the dynamics of the meeting, the Pope was saying the title of Mary and the crowd should have responded, pray for us. Holy Mother of God, Holy Virgin of the Virgins, Mother of Christ, Mother of the Church, Mother of Divine Grace, Most Pure Mother, most chaste mother, always virgin mother, immaculate mother, mother worthy of love, admirable mother, mother of good counsel, mother of the creator, mother of the savior, virgin most prudent, virgin worthy of honor, virgin worthy of praise, virgin most powerful, virgin most merciful, virgin most faithful, Mirror of perfection, seat of wisdom, cause of our joy, temple of the Holy Spirit, tabernacle of eternal glory, consecrated residence of God, mystical rose, tower of the holy city of David, impregnable fortress, sanctuary of the divine presence, ark of the covenant, gate of heaven, morning star, health of the sick, refuge of sinners, comforter of the afflicted, help of Christians, queen of angels, queen of the patriarchs, queen of the prophets, queen of the apostles, queen of the martyrs, queen of confessors, queen of virgins, queen of all the saints, queen conceived without sin, queen assumed into heaven, queen of the rosary, queen of the family, queen of peace. You see, from that sober biblical account of Mary, we are here confronted with a universe shaped by Marian thought and spirituality. And uh, if you notice the, the list of titles, they are all titles that ultimately are titles of Christ stretched in order to become Marian titles. As Christ is the King and Mary is the mother of the King, there must be a sense in which she is Queen. But the Bible never allows us to do such an extension, such a stretch. But once you put in place 
the mariological engine, it will move on. As Christ is the mediator and Mary is the mother of Christ, there must be a sense in which she works with the mediator in order for her to have a share in that mediation. Whatever Christ is and does, Mary is and does. As Christ is the helper or the comforter or the uh, high priest, and Mary being the mother, there must be a way in which Mary shares that role. And so she can be prayed to in order to be and receive help. That's the logic of Marian uh, theology and devotions. Once it is set in place, it grows and grows and grows and expands so what are the main problems? Can, can we move forward? There is a sense in which the growth of Mariology uh, superseded the role of Christ. In most, uh, the experience of most Catholics, especially in majority Catholic countries, Mary is seen as closer to us than the divine, to divine Christ. When we need help, she's the mother, and the mother is there to help us. The son is there, but the son is involved in more, you know, greater things. But the mother is caring for us. So she is prayed to. And in, in Italy, for instance, Six years ago, a poll was taken and asking people, when do you pray, whom do you pray to? And 60% of the people responded, if we ever pray, we pray to Mary, because she's the mother. So, over the centuries, this emphasis of the, on the motherhood of Mary superseded to the point of replacing the the sun, making the sun appear to be too remote, too divine, not to be approachable directly, and in need to be approached through the mother. And in this way, undermining the mediatorship of the sun. The whole point of the sun having become a man is that now we have a holy priest that can fully understand us. That's the whole point of the letter to the Hebrews. He has become a man so that we can approach the throne of grace freely and boldly. And he can understand us. We don't need other mediators. He is not too involved in you know, heavenly things, not to be interested in what happens around us, so that we need another closer mediator. The whole point of Christ having become a man is that he is with us. He understands us. But Mary has become a kind of replacement of Christ. And what about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the bond that unites us to the Son. 
he says Romans 8, he understands our groaning, he understands our uh, pains, and he transfers them to the Son so that they are heard. It is the Spirit that unites us to the Son, and the Son mediates us with the Father. So there is a whole Trinitarian dynamics going on when we pray. It is by the Spirit, in the name of the Son, to the Father. But if we have Mary in between, somewhere, Christ is superseded and the work of the Spirit is obscured. What's the role of the Spirit if we approach Christ in the name of Mary? So the Spirit is redundant. The Spirit is, so to speak, fired by Mariology. The Spirit is out of the picture. If, we, if Mary is the way to get to the Son, what about the, what about the role of the Spirit? He is obscure. In, in Catholic uh, spirituality, the Spirit is kind of a external agency, because Mary is the one who helps us to get to the Son. And then thirdly, the other main problem is that having this female figure, this woman, in this Trinitarian harmony, makes the Father appear as a male, sexual, sexually male. Mariology often underlines the fact that Mary is a woman, Mary is a woman, and she compensates the maleness of the Father. But in compensating the maintenance of the Father, Mariology stresses the fact that the Father is a male, from the gender point of view, which of course is not true, because the Father is the Father, is God, is beyond gender. He appears as with male names, but he also plays motherly cares is beyond our gender world, is beyond sexuality. But having Mary as a very prominent female figure makes the father a male. Humanizes the father to the point of making him a male. And in so doing, we can also understand why in, in, in the game, in, in Marian spirituality, the mother, the woman, is seen as closer to us. The male, the father, the dominant man is distant. But the mother, the woman, is closer. But in this way, it undermines the whole picture of the father not being a sexual being and making him a human male figure. We end up, can we put the next slide please? So by giving few uh, points in which we can honor the memory of Mary, follow her legacy, imitate her faith, uh, not by running the risks and 
of mariological developments, but actually staying within biblical boundaries and being faithful to the Bible in honoring the memory of Mary. And I think that she would have been much more happier with these uh, four steps than with what has become this Mariological construction. First of all, Mary uh, is an example in hearing and responding to the Word of God. She received the Word of God and she responded in faith as God communicated to her what was going to happen. That's an example for us. When we hear God's voice, even, even if it undermines us, it troubles us, it puzzles us, Mary's example is that when the Lord speaks, we have to follow. When the Lord commands, we have to obey. When the Lord's voice is heard, that is to be followed. Mary is a wonderful example of what it means to be a respondent believer and a responsive believer. The Lord speaks, we obey. The Lord calls, we follow, whatever the cost. That's a real good example. And there is a very important Marian principle here to be followed rather than following all the Marian practices and beliefs that unfortunately have characterized the history of the Catholic Church. Secondly, celebrating the works of God. As Mary received the message that she was about to become the mother of the Savior, she erupted in this song, the so-called Magnificat, I magnify the Lord for what he has done and that he will be doing. So not only he responded in, in obedience, but also he praised the wonders of God. Not only she obeyed in her personal life, but so she became a singer of the praises of God. And so setting an example for us uh, who are called to celebrate what God has done for us, not only to obey, but also to speak the praises of the Lord. She is a great example for us. Thirdly, she is an example in the fact that she stayed as close as possible to her son. She followed him. She had her ups and downs, but she followed him. Once she accepted that she was to become the mother of Jesus, she refocused her life in order to be a life that would, would follow the journey of the Son. And that's a great example for all of us believers. The, the closest we are, we, we are with the Son, the better for us. The more obedient we are to His voice, the better for us. The more uh, we, are we, we celebrate the works and the wonders of God, the, be the better for us. The, more we are clo the closer we are to the Son, the better for us. And she is an example of that. When it is easier to be close to the Son, when everybody uh, recognizes Him and uh, uh, celebrates Him, but also when He is left alone, when it is not the easy option to be close to the Son. He was there 
when he was standing on the cross. It was not easy to be there. It was not the easy option to be there, and yet he was there. So that's a great example of staying close to the sun, whatever the circumstances and whatever it may cost. And finally, being part of the Church of God, being an active part of the Church of God. Mary was part of the early community, praying and expecting and waiting for the coming of the Spirit. She was part of that community. She was totally involved in that early community. She was a member of the people of God, an active member of the people of God, uh, uh, having a role in being one among many. And so that's an, also an example for us, not to be isolated, not to be individualistic, but always think about our Christian life in terms of us being part of the people of God. She was not on her own. She was not going around saying, I am the mother. But she was part of the people, praying with the people, celebrating with the people, suffering with the people, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in this way, I think, she is a great example, a far better example than what the Mariological <coughs> expanded, inflated, agonized Mariology tells us. She's a better example if we follow the biblical pattern uh, that presents her as a model for us to be imitated. Thank you very much for your attention. And uh, so let's go ahead and have a time of some questions. Yeah. We are on this topic, and then we'll take a little break, and then we'll have another time of questions, and we'll invite all of them to join in like sure. on this topic. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the Gospel of the authors of the whole faith, James and Paul. Uh, the dating of it was for the four Gospels that yeah. we use, and is the, the Synthesis Gospel of James part of the accepted Catholic Bible or not? No, no, it is not part of the accepted Catholic Bible. It is a apocryphal, uh, non-canonical, even as far as the Bible, it, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is concerned. It was written in the second century, uh, later than the <coughs> synoptics, and even later than John's Gospel. So it was a, a later writing after the death of the Apostles, and uh, it was named after James, not because James had ever written it, but because of the common practice in the, early, in the early centuries of the church to attribute to an apostle the authorship of a writing in order to uh, accredit it to the audience, in order to make it appear as if it had been written by an apostle. But James, uh, I mean, is not the writer, is not the author. James was already dead. There is no evidence that he has, he has ever wrote uh, such a, a piece of writing. And, uh, uh, but interestingly, it is all focused on Mary, and uh, it shows that there were circles in the church and around the church that had began to be captured by this uh, figure of Mary and wanted her to be elevated, to be part of the narrative, part of the gospel story, 
beyond what the canonical gospel had uh, told. They are not this is not recognized as canonical, but it has been very influential, even beyond the recognition. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas's uh, uh, gospel uh, belongs to the Gnostic uh, movement and the attempt to introduce into early Christianity Gnostic ideas about uh, the enlightenment of few people having received the secret teachings of Jesus and then revealing them to a certain class of people. Uh, this gospel, uh, the gospel of James, is more adamant in saying uh, you have to know the story of Mary if you want to come to terms with what happened with Jesus. So shifting the focus from the person of Jesus to the person of Mary. As far as the Old Testament is concerned, yes. The Catholic Bible has the so-called deuterocanonical books added to it. Uh, it's a list of five, six books that are not part of our Bible and are not part of the Hebrew Bible. I mean, the Protestant Bible, the Protestant Old Testament is the Hebrew Old Testament because we have received it from the Jewish people. And uh, we have kept it as the Jewish people has, have has, uh, decided it or has agreed with upon it. The Catholic Church added at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, added five more books to the list of canonical books of the Old Testament. Oh, then the Maccabeans, the two books of the Maccabeans, Tobia, uh, uh, Ecclesiasticus, and sections of Daniel and Baruch, yes. These are more historical books and apocalyptic books that are not, well, they're interesting readings as far as the history, as far as history goes, but uh, um, the point of the Council of Trent always, is always important to ask the question, why did the Council of Trent want to add more books, given the fact that the early church had accepted the Hebrew canon. But the, the Council of Trent, after the Reformation, wanted to affirm the authority of the Church of Rome to be the mother of the Bible, and therefore to have the power and the authority to decide, even to enlarge and expand the canon of the Old Testament. It was an ideological point then. You know, as if the Church of Rome wanted to say, look, you Protestants, you, you're always talking about the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, we should be under the Bible, we should obey the Bible, but look, we, the Church, we are the mother of the Bible, and I tell you what, we decide to stretch the list of the biblical books in order to prove that we created the Bible, and we can create the Bible. So it was an ideological point that was introduced in the 16th century. But in previous centuries, these books have never been recognized as inspired, and the Jews have never recognized them as 
being part of the canon. So it was an ideological point uh, coming from the Catholic Church. New Testament is the same. New Testament. They went, they didn't go as far as changing the New Testament canon, but they uh, wanted to expand the, the Old Testament canon. So making even the, the Jewish, the, the Hebrew, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, very unhappy because it was a real uh, real act of war against even the Jewish people who had from whom we have inherited the Old Testament and here was the church saying no we have the power to expand it yeah please Well, and even the fact that she, in her, in her song, she calls uh, God her savior, and so she doesn't pretend to be different from anyone else about it. She calls God my savior, my savior. So it is evident that Mary was totally persuaded that she was a sinner in need of a savior, but. You see, this idea of Mary being having been preserved from original sin is something that uh, was created out of a logical development. Once you have in place this mechanism, the son, the mother, always connected with the son, if the son is sinless, there must be a sense in which she needs to be unique. And we, we cannot uh, say that she was sinless because in this way she would become a goddess, she would become a god, but that is not what the Catholic Church wants to say. So, at the same time, they wanted to uh, affirm her uniqueness, and so they came up with this idea of uh, her having been preserved from original sin. But there's the biblical evidence, clear evidence, shows that she called herself sinner in need of a savior so, and there is no need for the miracle of the incarnation to have a immaculately conceived mother because the point is the miracle of the birth of the son mother having been called by god to be the bearer of this child not out of her moral spiritual qualities but out of the uh, freedom and the free choice of God to have uh, called her to be the mother of the son. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's another point I, I, I didn't touch uh, on. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, the Gospels are very um, uh, very clear in indicating the fact that uh, Jesus had uh, brothers and sisters, and the family was not uh, Joseph, Mary, and uh, one son only. There were other sons, but. Uh, Across the centuries, uh, Catholic commentators have put forward several arguments saying, yeah, but these people were not uh, children of Mary, they were children of Joseph, Joseph um, who had had, had them in, in a previous marriage. Or, uh, and the other argument is that they were not real brothers and sisters, but, you know, in ancient cultures, everybody's a brother, everybody's a sister, according to uh, age and so they were parts of the family maybe cousins maybe related in some way but not necessarily now that's both arguments are uh, very poor arguments uh, because uh, there is no evidence there's no hint in the gospels that joseph had had a previous marriage uh, but this, this is what the, the Proto-Evangelium of James tells, that he had, had a, a previous marriage. And so he was old, uh, all the story of Joseph being an old man and uh, having had another marriage before, and children with it. Uh, but the Gospels do not tell us this. Uh, they tell us that the, they, they were a family with children. And the second argument uh, is really poorly uh, argued for because uh, the Greek language has words to indicate uh, relatives, members of family, but in that, uh, in those particular instances, the gospel writers, they use the word brother and sister as meaning uh, blood, uh, biological brothers and biological sisters. And uh, they, if they had wanted to convey the idea that they were family members related to a bigger family, they could have used other words, but they used the standard word for brothers and sisters, as if they were intending to indicate that they were real brothers and sisters. So the Gospels do not have this concern about protecting the virginity of Mary, because the point of the virgin birth is not Mary, it's Christ. That is the point. But once you shift the focus from Jesus to Mary, then her virginity becomes paramount and extends throughout her life. Whereas if the focus is Jesus, you want to preserve the virgin birth of the Son because it was caused by the intervention of the Holy Spirit. But once that miracle has happened, she, her virginity was not the thing per se. 